الله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنت لسنته إلى يوم الدين All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day uh, in this session the third session inshallah we'll try to cover uh, both hadith and fiqh uh, though they're both two fairly extensive topics you know because of the fact that we had set this over a three day period we'll try to cover both of these topics in this session and as I said it will just be uh, an introduction giving you a kind of a foundation to <clears throat> how to understand hadith and how to understand fiqh now the first of the two hadith because we said that hadith really represents the sunnah uh, and that we took the sunnah before we took fiqh because the sunnah combined with what we spoke of in the last session in, with tafsir this is what makes up the sharia divine revelation and uh, its interpretation and application is what we call fiqh or it's the islamic law right so um, first thing to understand concerning hadith is that first thing we should understand concerning hadith <coughs> is that the term hadith itself, Arabic term, hadith it means speech when you use it as a noun it means speech you know, talking and when it's used as an adjective it means something new if you describe something as being hadith it means that it is new but in the Islamic context, when we're speaking of hadith, what we're talking about is the sayings and actions and approvals of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, which were conveyed to us by his companions through generations of students and recorded in texts which we call the books of hadith this is what we mean when we refer to the term hadith now such a definition includes both authentic hadith which are generally called sahih as well as inauthentic hadith which are generally called ba'if two basic categories now in relationship to the sunnah hadith represents also the vehicle in which the sunnah was conveyed to us the sunnah goes a little further than I mean we could say the sunnah goes into when we talk about sunnah we talk about also things which the Prophet Muhammad did or not, not did which were not necessarily of legal implications and descriptions of the Prophet Muhammad all this is included in Sunnah but when we talk about Hadith really we are not really 
referring to descriptions of the Prophet Though these descriptions are conveyed through hadith, hadith represents the vehicle by which the sunnah was conveyed to us. The sunnah as well as uh, things uh, which occurred during the time of the Prophet which were even not conveyed by him also. These are, these are usually called athar, things which the companions did amongst themselves or uh, circumstances which occurred in the time of the Prophet which are not related directly to a statement or a practice of the Prophet but conveyed to us by the companions these are called athar right and this is handed down in the same way in which hadith were handed down okay now concerning the sunnah because I said when we talk about hadith we're really talking about the sunnah we have to understand that the Prophet Muhammad was first and foremost an example of what a Muslim was supposed to be. If Allah had wished, He could have revealed the Quran without a messenger. A book of revelation coming, no messenger. But he chose each time that he sent books of revelation, that he sent a messenger along with those books to show the people how to apply those books. A living example. This is why we have in Surah Al-Ahzab verse 21 where Allah says, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةً حَسَنًا Verily there is in Allah's messenger a good example for you and for whoever wishes for Allah in the last day and remembers Allah often. The Quran also commands us to obey the Prophet Muhammad For example, in Surah Al Hashr, verse 73, Allah says, Whatever the Prophet commands you, do it, and whatever he prohibits you, Leave it. And there are many, many verses of that nature where Allah is telling us to obey the Prophet Muhammad Now, how do we obey the Prophet Muhammad Today, he is not amongst us. We obey it through the commands which came to us through the Hadith, the Sunnah which has been conveyed to us by the Hadith. We also know that Allah has stated that when we have to resolve any issues which arise amongst us because Islam is a system not only for an individual but for a community because the believers ultimately are supposed to be a community for us to be able to establish Islam in the fullest sense we need to do so on a community level you know it's very difficult to do it on an individual level I mean of course it doesn't mean that you cannot be a Muslim you cannot be a practicing Muslim, Muslim. You cannot be a practicing Muslim unless you know you are in a complete community. No, One can practice Islam to a large degree as an individual. However, the complete practice will depend on the establishment of Islam as a, on a community level. There are certain things that you need to do. You know. If, uh, if a Muslim dies 
You have Salatul Janazah, the washing of the body. These are things which you die, you can't do it for yourself. So for that to be fulfilled, you need other Muslims. Right? Salatul Jama'ah. We have a congregational prayer. A number of them, Eid, etc., etc. This, you know, you cannot perform Eid by yourself. So it means that if you're on, on your own, then, you know, there's certain aspects of Islam, really, you cannot apply. But it doesn't mean that that takes you out of Islam. No. You do according to what you're able. However, Islam was ultimately geared to a community, nation type level. Because ultimately, man is a social being. He always functions with other people. He cannot exist by himself. He needs to be with other people. His needs to, to live. He has to depend on other people to, to make shoes that he wears, you know, to make a car that he drives, to build a house he lives in, produce the food in one way or another that he eats. He depends on other people. So the laws of Islam have come to suit the norm of human existence, and that is as a community. So when people live as a community, there will be differences of opinion. Problems will arise. And these problems have to be resolved. And what Allah has said is that these problems must be resolved by going back to the Quran and the Sunnah. Sunnah is your basis for resolving the issues. So we find in Surah Nisa, verse 65, Allah says, Know by your Lord, they do not truly believe until they make you, Muhammad, the judge between them in their disputes without finding within themselves uneasiness, but instead accepting it in total submission. So, not only are we enjoined to uh, follow what the Prophet ﷺ has said in terms of resolving our disputes, but that we must also accept what he has commanded in a way which is a complete acceptance where we don't have like we do it we say oh somebody brings it to you says you know Prophet said you shouldn't do this and you were doing it he said okay I'll stop doing it but it's like you've been pressured into stop doing it you're not stopping it where you just oh the Prophet said not to do it you know I'm giving it up totally totally right from your heart you know you've given it up right from your heart that's the way it has to be that's the basis of belief you know when you do it grudgingly you know, because the brothers are looking at you and, you know, you still want to do this thing, but, you know, they said, the Prophet said, don't do it, so you don't do it. You know, you're submitting, but you're, it's grudging. It's not really from your heart. This is not true belief. Further added to that, we have in Surah Al-Ahzab, verse 36, Allah says, It is not fitting for a believer, man or woman, when a matter has been decreed by Allah and His Messenger to have any choice in their affairs, if anyone disobeys Allah and His Messenger, he is indeed clearly, he is indeed clearly astray. So, when we receive information that this was the decision of Allah and His Messenger, we don't have, we don't feel within ourselves that we have a choice. Follow it or not follow it? No. Once we have found out that this is the way what the Prophet has commanded, 
then we accept it wholeheartedly and we keep on moving. This is a sign of true belief. You know, if we do it grudgingly, I'm not saying that you don't, it doesn't, just means you don't have any belief at all, but it just means your belief is still in that minor stage. It has not grown properly. A proper belief is one which accepts the commandments of the Prophet Muhammad of Allah wholeheartedly. And the reason why Allah has put so much stress on obedience to the Prophet Muhammad is because of the fact that what he commanded was based on revelation. What he commanded was based on revelation. This is why our declaration of faith, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, Muhammad Rasulullah, this aspect you know, of accepting Muhammad as the messenger of Allah, this is linked to our belief in Allah. Because what he conveyed to us was also revelation. And Allah states in the Quran, in Surah Najm, verse 4, لا ينطق عن الهوى إن هو إلا وحي يوحى. He does not speak from his desires. Verily, it is divinely revealed revelation. This is the basis. This is why we are so committed to following the way of the Prophet Muhammad Because what he gave us, what he conveyed to us, was revelation. So, in other words, for us, revelation came in two forms. We have revelation which was direct word of Allah, revelation, direct quote of the words of Allah, this is the Quran. And then the other indirect revelation where the Prophet Muhammad either paraphrased words of, of Allah, put the words in his own words, or he conveyed to us uh, things which were based on divine inspiration. But it's all based on ultimately from Allah revelation and this is why we are commanded to obey because obeying the Prophet Muhammad is obeying Allah as Allah said Rasul faqad ata Allah and Allah, uh, that is whoever obeys the messenger has obeyed Allah this is Surah Nisa verse 80 whoever obeys the messenger has obeyed Allah. And the Prophet you know, emphasized this himself in his own statements in the hadith collected in Bukhari. He stated, whoever obeys me obeys Allah. And whoever disobeys me disobeys Allah. So, Obedience to Allah, submission to Allah, because this is what Islam is. Islam is defined as submission of one's will to the will of Allah. This submission means submission to whatever Allah has commanded in the Quran or has commanded through the Messenger of Allah. So submission to what the Prophet has commanded is submission to Allah. And if we seek to worship Allah, we can only do so through the way of the Prophet Muhammad And this, if Prophet Isa did say, as Christians like to claim, 
that he did that no one comes to the Father except by me you know when we try to explain to them that they shouldn't worship Jesus because he was a man or whatever they will come back and say but it says in the Gospels there no one comes to the Father except by me now this by me if we were if Jesus did say this how it would be understood is that no one can come to the worship of God except by the way of the messenger of God correct worship is only in accordance with the way which was brought by the messenger of Allah so we, that's the same thing we are faced with we cannot worship Allah properly we cannot love Allah we cannot submit to Allah properly except by doing it through the way that the Prophet Muhammad has provided and it doesn't mean that we worship Prophet Muhammad no this is shirk it means that we must do it according, according to the way that he brought for us and Allah has said in Surah Ali Imran verse 31 say if you love Allah follow me he told, he told the Prophet Muhammad to say this right? if you love Allah follow me that is the messenger of Allah and Allah will love you and forgive you your sins for Allah is oft forgiving most merciful so the love of Allah for Allah to love us we have to obey the messenger of Allah we cannot attain the love of Allah except by submitting our will to that to the commandments of the messenger of Allah and the Prophet or as I say this is in, in the Quran itself uh, and Nisa verse 13 and 14 Allah has placed the reward for obeying the Prophet as paradise and disobedience to him as hell Whoever obeys Allah and His Messenger will be placed in gardens with rivers flowing beneath them to dwell therein forever. That is the greatest achievement. While those who disobey Allah and His Messenger and transgress the limits which He has set will be placed in the fire to dwell therein forever and have a humiliating punishment. So that's the bottom line. And as you all say, at the end of the day, this is where it comes to those who obey Allah and his messenger follow the way of the sunnah attain paradise those who do not are headed for hell and on one occasion Prophet Muhammad had said all of my nation will enter paradise except those who refuse when he said that the companions asked him who would refuse who refused to enter paradise? And the Prophet said, Whoever disobeys me has refused. This is in Sahih Bukhari. Also. Whoever disobeys me has refused. So a person, when he disobeys the Messenger of Allah, he is in fact saying, I don't want to go to paradise. I want help. 
You know, this is, these are the kind of concepts that we have to try to bring across to, say, family members. You know, some of you brothers mentioned, you know, your family members who have neglected the sunnah and are caught up in bid'ah in the cultural innovations which have been handed down for generation and generation. You know, you, the way to try to, to bring them to this kind of a consciousness is to, to bring these kind of verses to them. You know, get them back to the Qur'an to see what Allah has said concerning obedience to the Messenger. Doing or making one's life be in accordance with the way of the Messenger. You know, hopefully the verses of the Qur'an, if they read it and hear it, you know, it would maybe start to soften their hearts, to start to realize that they have to follow the way of the Prophet And then, having realized that, then you bring them the hadith, the statements of the Prophet which confirm that and, 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 and affirm that they must follow his way. And, of course, you know, as we mentioned in the first session, one of the importance of the sunnah is to understand the Qur'an. To properly understand the Qur'an, we stated the second method of interpretation of the Qur'an was tafsir of the Qur'an by the sunnah. So we cannot properly understand the Qur'an, all of the Qur'an, without going to the sunnah. So, not only is the Sunnah vital for us in terms of application of Islam on a general level, resolution of our disputes, etc. It is also essential for us to follow the, the Sunnah in order to understand the very revelation, direct revelation of Allah to us, the Quran. And as I mentioned before in this session on Tafsir, that the Quran cannot be separated from the Sunnah. And that whoever seeks to separate the Qur'an from the Sunnah seeks to deviate people. That this is a point of deviation. And you'll find the deviants commonly, they will nullify the Sunnah. You know, like we read the books of the Shiites. Generally speaking, they will, they will quote verses of the Qur'an and then they will say the Imam said, the Imam did, you know. You hardly hear them say the Messenger of Allah said or did. So they cancel out the whole of the Sunnah and they go directly to the so-called imams and they attribute to them certain things statements etc so which now replaces the sunnah because once you cancel the Quran you must replace its interpretation which was the sunnah with something else either it becomes the interpretation of the imam or it becomes the interpretation of the sheikh of the peer you know you read the books of the so-called Sufis etc you know the mystical writings you will find that you know these people who receive the special insight and all, these are the ones who are now going to be explaining the verse of the Qur'an to you. You don't hear them mentioning Prophet Muhammad said this, or he said that, companions did this, did that, you know. However, there is a very clear hadith which speaks of this. Because, of course, Allah knew that there would come a time when people would claim that they would only follow the Qur'an. So, the Prophet Muhammad was given that inspiration to make the statement let me not find one of you reclining on his couch and saying when he hears something regarding which I have commanded or forbidden I don't know what we have found in Allah's book we have followed 
this is in Abu Dawood and it's an uh, authentic narration. And furthermore, he said, Indeed, I have brought the Quran and something like it along with it. Yet the time is coming when a man reclining on his couch will say, Keep to this Quran. What you find in it to be permissible, treat as permissible. What you find in it prohibited, treat as prohibited. But what Allah's Messenger has prohibited is like what Allah has prohibited. The domestic donkey, carnivorous wild animals, lost property belonging to an ally unless the owner does not want it, are all not permissible to you. According to what is stated in the Quran, we are allowed to eat whatever is outside of those animals which were killed in the forbidden ways by strangulation, by goring, by clubbing, etc. However, Allah's Messenger has also prohibited the domesticated donkey. Domesticated donkey meaning, you know, if you take a donkey and you raise it yourself, it, you can ride it and, you know, not a wild donkey. A domesticated donkey you cannot eat. But a wild donkey, if you, you know, catch a wild donkey that lives in the bush, it's not a domesticated one raised, you can eat the flesh of that donkey. So Prophet he's the one who prohibited the domesticated donkey. He also prohibited carnivorous animals, the lion, the tiger. But he prohibited those. This is not in the Quran. And this is what he pointed out. And this you cannot separate the two. Because that prohibition that he gave, this was not his whim. It wasn't because he didn't like a domesticated donkey. Or he didn't like carnivorous animals that he prohibited. No. This was based on revelation from Allah. And we have a number of statements wherein the Prophet has informed us that by holding on firm to the Quran and the Sunnah, this is the way that people will stay on the correct path. When he spoke about the different sects, etc., you know, and he wanted to identify for the people what is the correct way, he referred to the one which was based on the Quran and Sunnah. He said, for example, in a hadith reported by Abu Huraira, uh, collected in Al Muatta, which is authentic, I've left with you two things. If you hold firmly on to them, you will never go astray. Allah's book and my Sunnah. On one occasion, he drew, he was sitting with the companions and he drew a line in the sand, in the dust. And he drew a number of lines going off on either side. And he said to them, referring to the line which is down the middle, this is Allah's path. And then in reference to the others going to the sides, he said, these are the paths of misguidance. On the, at the head of each one, there is a devil inviting people to follow it. And he recited the verse from the Quran, uh, from Surah Al-An'am, verse 153, Verily, this is my path, leading straight, so follow it, and do not follow the other paths, for they will scatter you about from Allah's path. That is his command to you in order that you may be conscious of Allah.
So our guidance depends on following closely the Quran and the Sunnah. And as we mentioned earlier, it is the Quran and the Sunnah as understood by the companions of the Prophet Muhammad and the early generation of righteous Muslim scholars. Because you may find somebody around today say, I'm following Quran and Sunnah, but what they're doing in practice is quite different from what the Quran and Sunnah uh, actually said or as it was understood by the early generation. But having said that, the Sunnah, that is, whatever the Prophet said, did, descriptions of himself, what he approved, should be divided into two categories. After we divided them into the first two categories of authentic and inauthentic, we said sahih and da'if, right? And to understand those two categories of sahih and da'if, uh, because of the time that we have, I really can't go into it in much detail. But um, this book, uh, Islamic Studies, it's bro broken down quite simply there. You know, what is a sahih hadith, what is a da'if hadith, you know, and... Um, uh, basically on pages 74 to 77 you know it explains in quite simple terms the difference between hadith sahih and hadith ta'if that is the authentic and the inauthentic when we're dealing with sunnah hadith really we have to be dealing ultimately with the authentic that which is correct because if we are if we are to build a ruling in Islam on the basis of what the Prophet ﷺ said or did, then we have to be sure that that ruling actually was said or done by the Prophet ﷺ. And that's what, that's what we mean when we say it is an authentic hadith or authentic sunnah. We're sure that it actually came from him. If it's da'if, not authentic, means there's doubt as to whether it actually came from him. We do not build the practices of our religion on doubt. We have to build it on that which we are certain about. Now, you know, ha having set, divided it into the da'if and sahih, we leave the da'if aside, fabricated, and we go over to the sahih, sunnah. This can be divided into two categories. That which we call the natural sunnah, or sunnah tabi'iyah, and the legal sunnah or the Sunnah Tashri'iyah. And this division is necessary in order to ensure that what we are following is what was intended to be followed. Why? Because Prophet Muhammad was first and foremost a man. He was a man. A human being. Not having divine qualities, you know, as was asked about earlier, you know, this divine light, the Nur Muhammadi, which has been attributed, that he was supposed to have been created from, etc. No, this is falsehood. He was not a divine being. He was a human being. His, the difference between himself and ourselves is that he received revelation from Allah. That elevated his status to a higher level of human being, but not to a supernatural being, someone who is now beyond human nature. No, he was a human being. He remained a human being. A human being 
in the 8th century in Arabia huh? Uh, yeah, sorry 7th century actually 7th century 7th century in Arabia uh, this meant that at that period of time there are certain things which affected human beings in Arabia the environment affected them in a certain way it meant they were going to dress a particular way they were going to have certain habits etc likes and dislikes being a human being he will have personal likes and dislikes so now when he received revelation revelation gave him guidance and commands for mankind until the day of judgment but it didn't cancel out the fact that he was a human being an Arab in Arabia in the 6th century 7th century it doesn't cancel that fact so it means that there are some things that he's going to do because of these factors as a human being there are going to be some things which he liked and disliked which have nothing to do with revelation for example lizard's meat bob was commonly eaten in certain parts of Arabia to this day you can go in Riyadh and buy bob it's a, like a desert iguana you know a big lizard like about this big fat body it's got spines down the back you know and usually they eat the tail part because the tail is big and it's muscular so it's cooked up it tastes like chicken I haven't eaten it but this is what I'm told right? but the point is that people there commonly ate this animal and on one occasion the wives of the Prophet was serving it to him and one of the wives asked the wife who was serving it did you tell him that it was but she said no he said you better tell him so you know after it was laid out in front of him and he was just about to eat she told him when she told him he took his hand up from it now one of the companions was sitting beside him and um he, when he saw the Prophet didn't eat it, he, he asked him, he said, he said, is this haram? Is this forbidden? He said, no. It's just, it was not something common to the place where I grew up, and I don't like it. So the companion, he went ahead, ate his and the Prophet. So, we know that here was personal dislike of the Prophet but it has no relevance to us in terms of legal sunnah. This was his personal dislike. So we are not in any way obliged to not eat that. It is halal. Finish. No, the Prophet didn't like it. Allah didn't make it haram because Prophet didn't like it. That is his personal feeling. Okay? So it's important that we understand this. Why? Because if a person got locked into the sunnah to the point where they fought, everything of the Prophet we must follow see then he would now be forced to be molding his whole life to everything which Prophet liked or disliked which had nothing to do even with the legal 
aspects of Islam. And for sure, it would create some difficulties for him ultimately, because some of the things are suitable to that place, that climate, and, and may not be suitable elsewhere. What you found, for example, Prophet Muhammad said was a man, and he was also living in Arabia. Arabia is the desert. The sun is beating on your head all the time. So the people of Arabia wore turbans. They wrapped turbans on their heads. They all did it. The pagans, as well as those who accepted Islam. So, we say wearing a turban is from the sunnah. But it is not from the legal sunnah. It is from the natural sunnah. This is what the Prophet did because that was the, the, the circumstances of the time. So we are in no way obliged to wear a, uh, a turban. If you want to wear a turban, fine. But do not feel that in doing so you are following the sunnah in the sense that was intended. Because there is no command with regards to wearing a turban. However, <clears throat> if you wear a turban, <clears throat> Prophet Muhammad said that for those wearing turbans, they should put wear caps underneath their turbans to distinguish them from the pagans. So here is the legal aspect of wearing a turban. If you wear a turban, then you should distinguish your turban from the turban of the pagans by wearing a cap underneath your turban. So that is the legal aspect of wearing a turban. But wearing a turban or not wearing a turban, this is up to you. Similarly, on a personal level, Prophet when he went to the marketplace to choose sandals to wear, he chose a particular kind of sandal which he liked. One which had two straps on it, made in Yemen, from cow's leather with the brownish red cow's leather with the hair shaved off. This is the description of the Prophet sandal. This is what he chose. He went to the market, he chose this, he liked this. Now, this is his personal choice. It doesn't mean that when we go to buy sandals, we have to buy this kind of sandals. No. However, you see, some people who have become sort of, who have a distorted view of the sunnah, where they've just grabbed onto everything, you find <clears throat> uh, there's a book called uh, Shamaili Tirmizi, which is published in Lahore, right, uh, with notes written by Muhammad. Zakaria. Actually, Shamail At-Tirmidhi was written by the, the Hadith scholar At-Tirmidhi in which he gathered Hadith concerning the Prophet Muhammad descriptions, etc. Now, this has been translated into Urdu and from there into English uh, along with a commentary. Now, when you read this commentary, it may be available in the bookstores here. You pick it up and you read it. And you read about the Prophet Muhammad's sandals. And in the commentary, you find the, this uh, commentator, Muhammad Zakaria, he is saying that there are so many barakas in these kind of sandals that if you even draw a picture of these sandals, you know, and you keep it in your room that is going to increase the quality of your life, you know, bring you money and... Ah. <laughs> you see? They're just, it's gone out on left field. Just, you know, this is deviation, actually. 
Because this is that process of elevating now the Prophet So that the sandal that he wore now, it's like the, um, it's like the Catholics, you know, they have uh, pieces of the, the cross, you know, and a piece of the robe that, that was supposedly on Jesus when he was on the, you know, this is a place where people come and take baraka from. And, you know, and of course, you find this in the Muslim world too. I know in Pakistan they'll have a tooth, which they say was the tooth which came out of Prophet's mouth was knocked out in, in Uhud, you know. And they have one, the people, every time, every time uh, his birthday comes around in the year, they'll bring out this tooth and people come, you know, to make, touch it and whatever, right? And the point is that if you go to Turkey, you know, in the Topkapi Museum, they also have a tooth there too, which they say is the tooth that came out. And if you go to Egypt, they have one there too. But we know he only lost one tooth, you know, but you go around the Muslim world, you got enough to fill a whole mouth, right? All these teeth. And people taking baraka from the teeth, you know? And, of course, even Islamically speaking, we reject this. We reject it outright because the only way we can accept that this tooth is the tooth of the Prophet Muhammad is if you have a chain of narration right back to the Sahabi who picked up the tooth, you know, in the Battle of Ohad, he picked it up, he gave it to his son, who gave it down, you know, in his hand, and we have the chain all the way down to say, yes, this was the tooth of the Prophet And you don't have any of these chains, you know? I know also in Pakistan, India, and, you know, in... Um, that's where they have hairs, supposedly from the Prophet's head, you know. And these hairs continue to grow, they, they claim, you know. I, again, you know, we reject all this stuff. Besides the, the shirk and the, this thing which comes out of it, people trying to take baraka from these hairs and teeth and, and things like this. I mean, just the fact that it, there is no basis for authenticity because there is no chain to, 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 to assure us that this, in fact, uh, was from the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu However, when a person wears a sandal, there is legal sunnah attached to wearing the sandal. Not in the kind of sunnah that the sandal that you wear, but in the wearing of the sandal itself. Prophet has said that whenever one of you puts on sandals, he should put on the right foot first, and when he takes them off, he should take off the left foot first. Well, this is the sunnah now. This is the legal sunnah. When you put on the sandal, because he's telling us, Whenever you put on your sandal, you put on the right foot first. When you take off the sandal, you take off the left foot first. This is the correct sandal. When you put it on your shoes, it's general practice. Put on the right first, take off the left first. This is a part of the, the we could say, the um, etiquette of a Muslim in wearing shoes. Now, of course, somebody would question, yes. Prophet also said, when you go into the bathroom, step in with the left foot first. When you come out of the bathroom, step out with the right foot first. When you go into the masjid, you step in with the right foot first. When you come out of the masjid, you step out with the left foot first. So somebody will ask, what is this? Stepping in with the right and the left and putting on the right and the left. No, what's the need? What's the need for all this? You know, what kind of religion is this? Where are you telling you what foot to put in here and out and, you know? For some people, especially in modern times, you know, people who tend to question, coming out of a background, Western type of background, people say, oh, why? Why do we have to do all this? See, the point is that I'm just, you know, going into this a little bit because it's important for us to sort of have a kind of a, an understanding of this because you will run into this and you should be able to give some kind of clarity to people, you know. Why would Islam go to the point of 
telling you which foot to put on in your shoes first and which foot to step in the bathroom with and stuff. The point is that when you observe animals, they do things in a haphazard fashion. When a dog goes to urinate, he doesn't always lift his right foot. He sometimes lifts his right, his left, you know. However, he doesn't follow any particular pattern. We are not animals. What distinguishes ourselves from animals is that we have systems. We build a home. We drive a car. We run a business. All of these depend on systems where you have to do this first and you do that after. If you don't do this first, it's not going to work. You get in a car, you want to drive, you just start turning the steering wheel, you're not going anywhere. You've got to put the key in the ignition. There's a series of rituals that you have to go through to get that car going and to stop the car. If you don't follow them, the car doesn't work. So, in the same way, that we, we recognize the need for system and order in the outer world for things to be done, why shouldn't we recognize the system and order for our self? That we operate according to a system. We are conscious of what we're doing. You're just not doing it unconsciously. You just throw things on, keep moving, and you know. No, but you're conscious of what you're doing. Because in being conscious, when you are putting on the right foot first, you are remembering the sunnah. Remembering the sunnah. Remembering to submit to the commandments of Allah. And in doing so, you are remembering Allah. And what is it that makes a person righteous? Remembrance of Allah. Isn't it? When you remember Allah, then you obey. When you forget Allah, disobey him. That's just the bottom line in terms of righteousness, good and evil. You remember Allah, you obey him. I mean, why did Adam disobey Allah? Satan caused him to forget. He brought these things, you know, which made him think that if he did this, he would become like an angel or become eternal and deep And he forgot Allah and the command. And so he disobeyed Allah. Same thing when Prophet Musa, remember when he was with Khidr and he left the fish, he said, you know, he had forgotten about the fish, the fish had gone back in the water. He said, you know, it was Satan who caused me to forget. And this is how, when a person, we are remembering the commandments of the Messenger of Allah and in that way, remember Allah. And this helps to remind us to do good. And what you see in these various commandments is that the right is favored over the left. Isn't it? Whenever we're doing something which is good, the right is favored over the left. Because when you put shoes on your foot, you're, you are doing something good to your foot. Right? If you walk barefoot outside and step on glass, whatever, you cut yourself. So you put the sandal on, you're protecting your foot. Something good that you're doing to your foot. So you do it to the right foot first, then the left. You eat, you eat with your right hand. You clean yourself with your left hand. The system. The good things you do with the right, the left, 
going to the toilet, you step in with the left. Now, what this also reminds us again is of the day of judgment. When Allah says on the day of judgment, those going to paradise will receive their book of good deeds in the right hand. Those going to hell receive it in the left hand behind their backs. So choosing the right over the left, favoring the right, this is also built in with the system of recognizing righteousness and seeking to do righteousness, seeking to be amongst those who are going to paradise. So it has a lot for us, though it seems like just a simple little act. So, we follow the Sunnah of the Prophet by putting on our right foot first when we're putting on sandals and taking the, the left foot off first when we're taking them off. And he further said, and if one should break the sandal, if the strap of the sandal breaks, you should not walk in one alone until you have the other repaired. If you break your sandal, you don't walk around with one shoe on, one sandal on, and the other one off. Take them both off until you repair it. Now, this one, of may wonder, well, why is that now? Why is it that we shouldn't walk around with one sandal on and one sandal off? Of course, there are a number of different things the Prophet has told us to do, which we may not be able to determine the benefit in it for us or identify the harm. So though we recognize fundamentally if he told us to do this, by us doing that we are submitting to the sunnah and in that way we are submitting to Allah and worshipping Allah by doing that. That is obvious to us. Though will also be some other benefit which we are not able, maybe at this point in time, maybe sometime from now we'll be able to perceive. Because, you see, the things which we have been prohibited are not merely prohibitions just because Allah just felt to prohibit us from doing this, prohibit us from doing that, so No. These prohibitions were based on human needs. Allah knows the makeup of man, what he needs, what is harmful to him. So he has prohibited the pig. He prohibited it because he knows the harm that exists in it for man. We may not be able to medically determine where that harm is. As Muslims, we submit to the commands of Allah, believing that it's harmful to us. We may seek to try to find out how it is for, you know, for our own further clarity for ourselves and for our purpose, etc. But we do not make the compliance to a command of Allah depend on our understanding of the harm or the benefit in that command. No. It's only in our times that we've found out that, you know, trichnosis uh, is common in the pig disease devastating the human body doesn't kill you but it devastates you and it's common to pygmies this is, the, this is where it's carried most of all 
Muslims didn't wait 14 centuries to find out that there's criminals in the city. They gave it up. They saved themselves the harm. Similarly, we have a statement of the Prophet in which he said, actually, was when the companions by name of Ya'ish ibn Thiqafah, who said, While I was lying on my stomach in the early morning, a man began to nudge me with his foot and then said, This is a method of lying which God hates. I looked up and saw that he was the messenger of Allah. Lying on his stomach. This hadith is found in Abu Dawood. Lying on his stomach. The Prophet came and nudged him. He woke up. When he heard the Prophet say, This is a method of lying, lying down on the ground, which lies. On the basis of that, There was another narration actually in which um, uh, one of the companions, uh, Abu Dhar, reported that the Prophet came to him when he was lying on his stomach, poking with his foot and said, in another occasion, Jundu, the inhabitants of hell lie. Now Muslims gave up lying on his And I remember myself when I was traveling with Jamaat Tabir when I first came to Islam. I traveled with Jamaat Tabir and Jamaat Tabir because they were the people who were moving about, talking about Islam and knowledge and traveling and learn more about Islam and gain whatever knowledge is available. And while traveling with them, I remember asking the same question. Why is They gave some explanations, but I really wasn't that convinced. You know, they said, well, you know, if you lie in your stomach when you're on Shabbat, right? And you have any kind of food, you know, you're liable to have a wet dream, right? If you lie in your stomach, you know, or if you lie on your back or your side, in place. Well, you know, still, what about women? You know, I mean, it's just, it's questionable. And I, I had my doubts about the really. And I really never heard any such, you know, <coughs> good explanation for this. And um, years later, when I was in Panama, and uh, some brothers there are doing a class, lecture. And this issue came up, and people again asked me, people asked me, like, why? And I thought, really, I don't you know, Allah. God hates it, when people feel like believing. believing that there is harmony. And it was just Allah's will that, you know, when I was flying from Panama going to Guyana, and on the plane, they had Time Magazine, I was reading Time Magazine. And this issue of Time Magazine was about back problems, various operations that they have to do for people, curvature of the spine, and, you know, the various complex operations that they do to correct, you know, problems. And at the end, you know, when they described all the different operations and pictures and everything, at the end they had a list of doctor's recommendations. 
In the very first, number one, it said, poor sleep posture is a sure invitation to backaches. Use a firm mattress, lie on the side with a bend in the knees. Avoid lying on the belly, a position that increases the spine's lumbar curvature, causing that familiar sagging called right out of Time Magazine, July 14, 1960. I'm not saying this is the only thing, because actually, just uh, some months back, I was reading an article from the newspapers where British scientists who have been studying the phenomenon of what is known as cot death, or sudden death syndrome, SDS. They said that children should not be put to sleep on their stomach. Because those children, part of their syndrome is they put kids to sleep, mother goes away, comes back five minutes later, you know, a few minutes later. I don't know why. Breathing stops and they die. They don't know really what is the cause. But by analyzing the situations within which all these kids died, they found that one thing they had in common was sleeping on their stomachs. So they, they said that, that children should not be put to sleep. We don't have to wait, you know, 1400 years to find out that this is the cause of sway back and curvature of the spine and that, you know, it kills babies. We know what Allah said, don't lie in your stomach, you don't put our babies to sleep on the stomach, or do we sleep on our stomach? No, we know medically speaking, of course, you know, if a child has, you know, gas, you may put the child temporarily, whilst you're present there, put the child to help the gas to come up, right? But you don't put the child to sleep on the according to the medical profession's recommendations today. So, looking back then at the Sunnah, we see that the Prophet did certain things. He chose certain things, dislike, like things which were personal, and there are other things which he commanded. Now, going back to the issue of the sandal, there may be some factor which may be shown, you know, if Muslims decide to go do research. And if you walk, for example, outside, with one sandal on and one sandal off, Your foot with the sandal touching the ground, and your foot without the sandal touching the ground. If the ground is cool, it means there is a difference in temperature between one foot and the other. If the ground is hot or warm, there is a difference in temperature between the two. There may be, if scientists went to look into that, they may find that there is something, the system is affected in some way because of this difference in temperature. Could be, or one foot being slightly higher than the other whilst you're walking could affect your posture in some way but the point is we don't have to wait until scientists figure it out for us to comply with the commandments of the I should also mention here that there is a very famous hadith 
which is collected in Sahih Muslim, where in the Prophet Muhammad you know, which is really the basis of this idea of dividing the Sunnah into legal matters. This hadith, collected in Sahih Muslim, volume 4, page 112, coming to Medina and finding the people of Medina artificially pollinating their date palm trees. Date palm trees are male and female date palm trees. And the wind and insects, etc., may carry the pollen from the male tree to the female tree and call it, cause it to be, uh, become ripe and to bear. The people of Medina, they would artificially pollinate by taking a portion out of the male tree slicing it when the Prophet came across them doing that, he asked them why they were doing it. And they replied that it was their habit to do so. And we know we know in the Sunnah, Prophet, we can see so many things in the Sunnah which point towards dealing with things in a natural way. You know, not plucking your eyebrows, right? Marking your face, filing your teeth, making tattoos. These things have been practiced. Artificially uh, marring the way that Allah has created. We find a general recommendation in the Sunnah for it. So, Prophet going on that general recommendation, he, when he asked them, Why are you doing this? They said, We always did it, you know, our foreparents did it, so we continue to do it. He said to them, Perhaps if you did not do it, it would be better. So they did the next year, the following, the, the following year, the crop that they received from the dates dropped tremendously. So they came to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and said, "We told us not to do it, and our year the dates is dropping." So Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam turned to them and said, "I am only human being. When I issue any command to you regarding your religion, accept." But when I issue any command to you based on my own opinion, I am nearly He has made a decision. What happened, of course, is that whenever Prophet made a decision based on his opinion, Allah would correct him. This is what happened. This was correct. Because if Allah did not correct this and let it be known to the people that this was the opinion of the Prophet then it would be prohibited for us to artificially pollinate. But this was just the Prophet's opinion. So Allah caused the yield to be low. Of course, the yield could have remained high because by the winds, etc., the yield can still, on occasion, be high. But it's just that when you artificially pollinate, you guarantee a high yield. So Allah caused the yield to be low to bring out this aspect of the Sunnah. That this was the opinion of the Prophet And where we have things which are by his own personal opinion, we as Muslims are not obliged to follow. So this was the distinction between the Muslim and the Muslim.
legal sunnah and the natural sunnah. Now, coming from the legal sunnah and the natural sunnah, we can go into something of Islamic law, because as I said we're supposed to cover both sunnah, hadith, and fiqh. And under the heading of the legal sunnah which has come to us this has been divided commandments, prohibitions etc. been divided into five categories which we commonly hear about what is known as wajib part first category what is known as mandu also called Sunnah, second category, third category, category is called Makru and the fifth category called Haram that is from the commandments of the Sunnah and practices you can divide them into these main five categories Wajib or Fard means literally compulsion Mandub or Sunnah, Sunnah is here used here to mean Mandub. Another term used here is also Mustahab. All of these three terms, these mean recommended. The third category, Mubah, means allowed, neutral. Really allowed. Makru means literally dislike and haram means forbidden now these are terms that we hear commonly this is makru, this is haram now this division of course was not made by the prophet he did not say this commandment is watching this one this is scholars looking at the various commandments of the Prophet the prohibitions they for the purpose of, of applying these principles from the sunnah to day to day life they categorize them now that which is compulsory wajib or fard in the Hanafi madhab they make a distinction between that which is wajib that which is for the majority of scholars in the other schools do not hold any distinction between the two things. In Hanafi school, you know, uh, Fard is considered something which is made compulsory by the Quran, 
whereas wajib is something made compulsory by the sunnah. But as I said, for majority of scholars, wajib and fard actually linguistically speaking are And since both Quran and Sunnah came as revelation, there really is no distinction between the two as the Prophet Whatever he commanded is what Allah commanded. So, first category, compulsory. This is looked at as any commandment which was given by the Prophet Muhammad wherein he made no exceptions. He commanded us to do something and there are no exceptions. Exceptions either by his practice or by statement or by companions of the, 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 the Prophet doing things in his presence. You know, none of this exists. We understand that command to be composed. For example, Salah. Salah. We're commanded to make Salah. There are no exceptions allowed. Growing the beard. Sahih Bukhari. Commanded us to grow our beard. No exception. By growing the beard is considered to be watching. Though some people refer to it as being recommended. In fact, we see a clear commandment of the Prophet wherein he made no exception. On the basis of that, the basis of our belief that obeying the Prophet is obeying Allah, we grow our beards distinguishing ourselves from the second category that which was recommended this is things which Prophet encouraged us to do or which he did most often For example, among the recommended things, we have the sunnah that we pray before fard, voluntary prayers, recommended prayers before fard, before fajr, before dhuhr, after maghrib. These are recommended. Prophet said, if you do this, no, you'll get this kind of before. It's not compulsory, but just recommended. This also includes a category of things where the Prophet ﷺ commanded us to do something and then he has modified that command by his own practice or by his thing. For example, praying the five daily prayers in their time. This is commandment in the Quran this is commandment from the Sunnah however Prophet he prayed Zuhur and Asr together and Maghrib and Isha together 
when there was no rain, no sickness, nothing to say, well, this is the reason why he did it. And when he was asked about it, he said that he did it to remove from Ummah the difficulty. That given a circumstance where it is difficult for us because of job situation or tiredness because Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said you know if you're tired you should go to sleep don't pray when you're tired if you stand up there and you know you may be committing shirk in what you're saying the Quran okay you don't have any concentration Salah becomes useless better you go to sleep wake up and then you may with that intention I don't mean that it's time to pray and you know you know it's time to pray but you delay you delay you delay till eventually you last the time of prayer. If you do it that way you, you're, you've committed sin now. But if you, because of your circumstances, for example, the time of prayer comes and you know you're sleeping, so you make the intention of praying duhur along with your asr, based on the practice of the Food is served. Prophet Sam said when food is served, there's no prayer. No prayer at that time. Prayer time is coming. You know it's going to take time to eat your meal, so you make the intention to pray. You know, if you know the time that the food has come, right, right the time of prayer, there is you're likely to miss that time of prayer. Then you make the intention to pray two prayers together. So this is from the Sunnah. We've understood that uh, this is something which is. That it is highly recommended for us to pray our prayers at the exact time. But it is not compulsory to the point that if you didn't do so, as in the case where you joined, or, you know, we know that Prophet did it when he was traveling. There are other circumstances in times of sickness, women who came, who were bleeding continually, you know, he told them to join the prayers. So we know that there are a variety of circumstances where you are allowed to join those prayers. So we know that the praying on the time then is general recommendation, not a compulsory state where you become sinful and join the prayers. So this is what the idea I want to get across, where something can be understood to be recommended by the Prophet commanding something and then modifying the command by an action or by another statement. The category of what is Mubah, this is something wherein there is no command or prohibition anyway. It's just left. Up to you. An example of that would be like taking a bath because it's a hot day. It's a hot day, it's sweaty before you take a bath. This is nothing, it's not, you know, been told to you in any way, shape, or form that you should take that bath because it's a hot day. It's just a neutral choice you may have. You may do, you may not do. The fourth category is referred to as makru, which means dislike. And this category represents the category of things which the Prophet identified as being hateful. Like I gave you the example of uh, the man sleeping on his stomach. He said it's the sight God hates. 
life has become something more cruel. It's fine. Uh, also, it is a category of things which Prophet ﷺ, for example, forbade in strong terms, but later in his action or statement, reduced that prohibition to to it being disliked. For example, Prophet ﷺ said, if any of you find yourself drinking or eating standing, you should vomit. Right. Don't eat and drink standing. He took that alone to indicate that it's haram to do so. However, companions said they saw Prophet Ali, So we know from that that no, no, also not Zamzam and other than Zamzam. We know from that that the command was here one indicating dislike. It is Maku, disliked to drink and eat that, but that it is permissible to use. It was preferable not to use. The last category is that of haram. And we know something is haram when it has been prohibited without any exception. Any normal exception. Eating of pig taking a box in any form, you know, these are things. We also know it is prohibited if the Prophet said that one who does this, one who does this will end up in hell. So another way we know. The punishment for a particular act, the hellfire, then that thing must be prohibited. Haram. Prohibited. Also, if the Prophet or Allah through the Quran has identified a particular punishment in the Sharia for it, it is also considered haram. Fornication, a hundred lashes, haram. Stealing, losing your hand, this is haram. The ways of identifying haram. Now, in terms of reward and punishment, these categories could be looked at in this way. That wajib or fard is an act which if you do it, you are rewarded. If you do not do it, you are punished. Haram is an act which if you do it, you are punished. If you do not do it, you are rewarded. Stop. Mandub or mustahab recommend is an act which if you do it, you are rewarded. If you do not do it, there is no punishment. Makru is an act which if you do it, you are not punished. If you do not do it, you are rewarded. They're up. And then in the middle we have Mubah, something which if you do it, there's no punishment or reward. If you don't do it, there's no punishment. Those are your major categories into which the Muslim scholars have divided up 
everything, everything we do in our life, everything we eat, everything we wear, everything which exists around us comes under one of these five categories. This is how Islamic law encompasses all aspects of it. So, for example, we have the issue of smoking. Smoking cigarettes. Ganja, marijuana, this is haram, no doubt. Finish. But smoking cigarettes is an issue which we had many people say is makruh. We hear some people saying haram. So now, how do we deal? On what basis was it ruled to be makruh? When smoking, when, when tobacco first came into the Muslim world, into the Ottoman Empire, the scholars of the time, they looked at the effects of smoking. And the only thing they could see as an effect from it was bad breath. The smoke person smokes cigarettes, he gets what is known as a smoker's breath. Offensive odor comes out of his mouth and sleeps. And so they went back to the Sharia, to the laws of the Quran, and sort of to find out how does Islam rule on bad things which cause bad breath. And there were hadiths the Prophet said, whoever eats onions, garlic should not come to our The eating of onion and garlic, being in the presence of people, praying, etc., is considered to be makru. Because, of course, in prayer, when we make salah, you know, we say salam alaykum wa rahmatullah. If you're just eating some garlic, that's death harming your Muslim brother so you're not allowed to eat garlic or so they ruled based on this they said okay since this is similar it caused a similar effect we make a similar ruling that smoking is also however a few years back after extensive research of half a century, the medical profession have concluded without a doubt that smoking produces cancer and cancer kills. Therefore, smoking kills. Have a new body of knowledge by which you analyze the effects of smoking. And so the ruling now has to change. We can't keep going about by the same ruling which was made 400 years ago. We have a new situation here now. The information tells us now that smoking kills. So we have a new category. We have a category of a poison. Of a poison. And we know in Islam, Prophet said, you know, whoever kills himself will find himself in the hellfire killing himself over and over again. He did so by drinking poison, he find himself drinking poison. Did so by stabbing himself in his belly with an uh, iron knife to find himself. He did so by throwing himself off a cliff to find himself throwing himself off a cliff perpetually in hellfire. So we know that the punishment for suicide is hell. And we said whenever a punishment for a deed is defined as hell, that deed becomes haram. So the ruling for smoking now becomes haram because of you. Of course, I know smokers will say, well, I'm not killing myself now. You know, I mean, maybe 40 years from now, maybe, and 
matter. You see, the point in Islamic law, if you take a glass of poison, you know, you just, uh, instead of taking like a full glass, you only take, you know, a few drops in your orange juice every morning. You drink it like after six months, you fall over and you die because you didn't take it. This is the same as if you take it in a full glass and kill yourself one time. It's suicide. You knew what you were taking would kill you. Could kill you. So then it becomes haram. See, actually in Islamic law, something which may be ruled in general as being halal, for example, sugar. Sugar is halal. Sugar is halal. But if you are a diabetic, and the doctor tells you, if you take sugar, it will kill you. It will make you comatose and die. And sugar for you becomes haram. So you see, the rulings of Islamic law depend on the evidence that we have in terms of the effects. If a person says, well, not everybody who smokes gets cancer. Because from time to time we read in the newspaper, you know, I read about this woman in China who was 130 years old or 120 years old. You know, they asked her about her lifestyle. She smokes a cigar every day and, you know, drinks a glass of alcohol. You know, what are they promoting here? What are they promoting here? Ah, it's been a law's will that she has smoked a, you know, cigar every day and drank, you know, a glass of alcohol and she's lived to 120 or 30, whatever it was. But is that the case for everybody? No. The vast majority of people who do that, die. Allah kept her alive as a sign. This is a sign to us. That if Allah wills, the very things which kill everybody will not kill you. It is ultimately Allah's destiny. However, we are obliged to deal with cause and effect. If the majority of people who take cigarettes die of cancer, then we assume that cigarettes are poison. Because we don't know which of us is the one who's going to live to 120. So we go according to the general rule. This is how Islamic law is always applied. Same thing with alcohol, for example. Islam prohibits alcohol across the board. I remember my uncle when I was discussing with him about Islam. He was saying, you know, but what about myself? You know, I only drink a little bit. I never get drunk. Truly, he was an individual who controlled his drink. Only on Sundays, whatever. Without getting drunk. The point is that, as I explained to him, if Islamic law came with this condition. Those people who get drunk are not allowed to drink. Who is going to say they get drunk? Everybody's gonna, you know, assume that they don't get drunk and drink. So because most people who drink get drunk, and when they get drunk, then they commit heinous crime. Prophet said that intoxicants are the mother or the birthplace of filth, corruption, called al-khamr, ummul khabai. We 
to the cross. Prohibit to the cross. That's the general way in which Islam requires. So similarly, when we deal with issues like smoking, though there are exceptions to the rule in terms of people smoking and dying, the general thing is that people die from it comes Islamic law is based on four principles. The Quran, which we spoke about, and we mentioned that the Quran was the Arabic revelation, not the English translation. The Quran is defined as the words of Allah revealed to Prophet in Arabic. Who's Recitation is an act of worship, and the smallest chapter of it is a miracle in and of itself. This is the Quran. That is the one of the main pillars of Islamic law, the first pillar. The second is that of the Sunnah, which we spoke about. The legal Sunnah. The third is referred to as Ijma, consensus of the companions of the Prophet. Now these first two that I mentioned, these are what we call Sharia. They are based on divine revelation. The next two are based on what we call Ijtihad, reasoning. That one was the Ijma, which is the consensus of the companions and the fourth one is called Qiyas or deduction by way of analogy. Example of Ijma is the collection of the Quran. In Prophet's time he did not collect the whole Quran altogether. After his death, you know, one year into the rule of Abu Bakr, Omar came to Abu Bakr and suggested to him that they compile the Quran into one, gather up all the writings, so and so on, and make up one text. Why? Because the number of people who had memorized large portions of the Quran were being killed in the battles. The battles were taking place in the early reign of Abu Bakr. And the reason being that those people who had memorized largest portions of the Quran, they had absorbed the meanings of the Quran to such a degree that they were in the front lines of the battle. The law talks about you know giving your life to a law that guarantees paradise. So they were in the front lines. You see, they were not just memorizing. You know, you got a guy with a half of the Quran doesn't know one word of the Quran. What is he? What is half? You can recite it from beginning to end. 90 miles an hour. You ask, what does this word mean? This is not Hafiz, but it's not really Hafiz. This is not what we are encouraged to learn. It's not the way we're encouraged to learn the Quran. Companion said that they used to learn the Quran five verses at a time. And they would not go on to another uh, to a new five verses until they had learned all that Allah had commanded in those verses 
what was halal and haram, etc., and they tried to apply it themselves. Then they went on to apply it. This is how they approached the So the point is that because so many people are being killed, Omar recognized that there was a chance that the knowledge of the Quran would be lost. And he suggested to Abu Bakr that they compile it. Now Abu Bakr, when it was first suggested to him, he said, no. How could I do something which Muhammad Azam didn't do? That was his first reaction. Because it appeared this is something looking like bid'ah. Something which Prophet didn't do, the companions were very, very, you know, nervous, very, very weary about doing something which he did. Omar stayed reasoned with him so and so until he accepted it. He could see the reasonability of it based on the verse of the Quran itself, what it was uh, referring to the Quran as a book. You know, and Prophet telling people to write it down, etc. The intent there was to compile. So, after that, they went to Zayd ibn Thabit, who was one of the uh, people who wrote down Revelation and memorized the whole Quran during the Prophet's lifetime. He was present with the Prophet when the Quran was recited twice. So the whole Quran was recited twice in the last Ramadan of his life. And he was given, uh, they came to him, Abu Bakr and Omar came to him to ask him to take on the task of And when they came to him with this task, first his reaction was, no way, how could I do it? Prophet didn't do it. Same thing just like Abu Bakr. So they reasoned with him until he agreed. And it was a consensus of the Muslims on the basis of that, that the Quran was compiled into one text. The example of Ishma. Similarly, the second Adhan of Juma. In Greenland, they just have one Adhan. What do they have two? They just have one as far as I know. And I've come in there and just been one. Right? What you find in most masjids, they make Adhan, people all get up to make Sunnah, and then the Imam comes and they make another of that. 